0: Well, we're going to go through... um, We're going to spend probably a few weeks on numbers because um, there's really some some interesting stuff in here. It can be kind of a discouraging book because this is the book that tells about the 40 years wandering. It's amazing how few chapters are dedicated to those um, 40 years of wandering. But I want to just uh, mainly focus on one aspect of the book of Numbers. First of all, this is what we've done here for the last, um, what, six Bible studies... Whether you realize it or not, we've just been at the foot of Mount Sinai this whole time. Okay, We talked about Moses' role as an intercessor, what that tells us about intercession. We talked about Ten Commandments and rules, what was their purpose. We talked about the command to punish to the fourth generation. And then we discussed the rebellion at Mount Sinai, the people dancing around the golden calf, God comes to kill. We talked about how Moses... Um, how he really demonstrated the ideal of love in that circumstance. And then we spent the last two weeks talking about the tabernacle, but all of these rules and things, commands were given at the foot of Mount Sinai. So I thought this verse actually fits um, pretty well here. As they leave Mount Sinai, you've stayed long enough at this mountain. Break camp and move on. So I think we've spent enough time at Mount Sinai. So let's get on with the story here at this point. So, the book of Numbers tells about on the 20th day of the second month, in the second year after the people left Egypt, so they really hadn't, we were not that far into the story. The cloud over the tent of the Lord's presence lifted, and the Israelites started on their journey out of the Sinai desert. And so, just an overview here of the book of Numbers. Okay, because we have these two uh, census in the book of Numbers called the book of Numbers. So we start out learning that there were 603,000 men over 25, as always, lots and lots of complaining, trouble, problems, and then of course the 12 spies go out to scout out the land, and the people decided they didn't want to enter the promised land. And then we have the 40 years wandering. And again, uh, such little time in terms of just um, text, that tells us much about that, but two of the more remarkable things, Korah's rebellion, we might get to next time, and then Moses striking the rock. People get close to the promised land. Of course, remember, Balaam came to curse the people. And then we have another census, and it's just interesting here that it's about the same number, now 601,000, but it's an entirely different group by the time they arrived. There was not even one man left. Among those who Moses and Aaron had listed in the first census, the Lord had said that all of them would die in the wilderness, and except for Caleb and Joshua, they all did. Okay, so we have a very dramatic turnover here of people over these 40 years. So let's just build up here a little bit. I want to talk about what happened when the people were told they'd have to wander in the desert for 40 years Lots of complaining. Maybe I don't need to give these verses because you're probably all aware of how much grumbling and complaining. There's no meat to eat, nothing but this manna day after day. I mean, we could list verse after verse of how um, upset the people were again and again. But what you might not realize is that Moses here gets pretty upset himself. Okay, listen to Moses here in Numbers 11. Uh, Would you feel comfortable talking to God this way? Moses heard all the people complaining as they stood around in groups at the entrances of their tents. He was distressed because the Lord had become angry with them. And he said to the Lord, "'Why have you treated me so badly? Why are you displeased with me? Why have you given me responsibility for all these people? I didn't create them or bring them to birth. Why should you ask me to act like a nurse and carry them in my arms like babies all the way to the land you promised their ancestors? Where could I get enough meat for all these people?' They keep whining. And asking for meat. I can't be responsible for all these people by myself. It's too much for me. If you're going to treat me like this, have pity on me and kill me so I won't have to endure your cruelty any longer. Wow. And uh, we just read on a few chapters here in Numbers and Moses and Miriam decide uh, they're not really thrilled about the authority that Moses had either. And God comes in and talks about how, hey, I speak with Moses like a friend. So interesting, he was very honest. Of course, God knew this was what, what was on his heart, so he told God how he felt. And he's declared to be a friend of God. Well, we'll maybe come back to that point. But let's talk now about the, the spies. So you know that the spies were sent out, 12 of them, one from each tribe, to explore the land of Canaan. And you'll remember what happened. They came back with their report. But the people who live there are powerful. Their cities are very large and well fortified. Even worse, we saw the descendants of giants there. And so the people were terrified. And But Caleb silenced the people who were complaining against Moses and said, We should attack now and take the land. We are strong enough to conquer it. And all night long the people cried out in distress. They complained against Moses and Aaron and said, it would have been better to die in Egypt or even here in the wilderness. Why is the Lord taking us into that land? We will be killed in battle and our wives and children will be captured. Wouldn't it be better to go back to Egypt? So they said to one another, let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Okay, they're done. They want to head back. And of course, God intervenes at this point. Moses and Aaron bowed to the ground in front of all the people and Joshua and Caleb, two of the spies, tore their clothes in sorrow and said to the people, the land we explored is an excellent land. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will take us there and give us that rich and fertile land. Do not rebel against the Lord and don't be afraid of the people who live there. We will conquer them easily. The Lord is with us and he has defeated the gods who protected them. So don't be afraid. And and this next part is is the verse I really want to concentrate on here. Notice, the whole community, I mean everyone, was threatening to stone them to death, but suddenly the people saw the dazzling light of the Lord's presence appear over the tent, and the Lord said to Moses, how much longer will these people reject me? How um, How much longer will they refuse to trust me, even though I have performed so many miracles among them? Okay, I want to just uh, talk a little bit about this relationship here. First of all, what does God want? Remember when we talked about the story of Abraham and God said, there's a man who trusts me and he is set right. He trusts me. What God wants is trust. Uh, You know, in the Greek, there's one word, pistis, which can be translated faith, trust, believe. Okay, what God really wants is our trust. And in this case... You know, God says, hey, I've done miracle after miracle for these people, and they still don't trust me. And I want to consider this relationship between faith or trust and miracles. In this case, lots and lots of miracles, but no faith, no trust. Now, usually when we think about miracles, um, we think about, well, lots of questions um, we could ask here. Uh, Don't we often say, if we just had more faith then we'd see more miracles. Um, I heard someone recently talk about being at the bedside of a very sick individual. And uh, this person told me, I knew if I just had more faith that he'd be healed. Now, certainly there is that relationship. Jesus talked about that. But uh, this could paint, um, well, what would it say of God if um, God is waiting for faith to reach to a certain level? Maybe just the faith of a mustard seed. Could we give it a number? If it reaches 70%, then God will act. Otherwise, he's here with his arms folded. Uh, 68, oh, you got really close. Not quite enough faith. Um, Well, how does this work? Um, I notice that oftentimes when we talk about faith healing and things like that, that it's usually, um, well, have you seen someone with advanced cerebral palsy um, healed? Or uh, do we see dead people raised like we did during the time of Jesus? It tends to be more arthritis and perhaps things that might be more uh, susceptible to to certain uh, influences. Does that mean a little faith? We get just a little bit of small healing for smaller problems. We had more faith. We'd see lots more uh, people being resurrected from the dead. Well, what's interesting to note here, again, coming back to this time... Was there much faith? Did the people have much faith? Had very little faith. Were there lots of miracles? Lots and lots of miracles. I mean, the plagues of Egypt, Red Sea opens up, manna from heaven, water coming out of rocks and deserts. Um, It would seem the relationship here is reversed, isn't it? No faith, miracle after miracle after miracle. Okay, what's, uh, what's going on there? Now, we could go lots of, through lots of examples. You know, other than the life of Jesus, probably the most concentrated miracles in the Bible during the time of Elijah and Elisha. Um, this is supposed to be Elijah here going up in the chariots of fire. Looks a little more like a wheelchair there. But uh, anyway, uh, Elisha here watching Elijah go up to heaven. But when we consider the miracles in this time, again, was this a time of high faith? Uh, there was almost no faith during this time. Uh, you remember the story about how the false prophets of Baal were dancing around. I mean, no one was on Elijah's side. But yet we see fire come down from heaven. How about that for a miracle? Okay, you would think we'd all be convinced. Right? Fire from heaven, and then you read on: the people bowed down, the Lord is God, the Lord alone is God. And if you're reading through Numbers or through 1 Kings here, I mean you would think just intuitively, if we'd all seen fire come down from heaven there would be a dramatic conversion, right? I mean, wouldn't we all uh, change our minds? We go in whatever direction we were told, fire from heaven. Well, you read on the next chapter, what's happening? Elijah is running away from Jezebel. No conversion. It didn't seem like it triggered anything. And uh, the next chapter, Elijah runs off and says, God, I think I'm the only one you have left, despite the big miracle. Okay, why does it work that way? Okay, no faith, major miracle, and it resulted in no change. What about the miracles of Elisha? I mean, have you considered all of the just spectacular miracles that happened? Again, a time of no faith. Elisha parted the Jordan River, purified water with salt, called down rain from heaven. You remember the widow's jar that kept pouring with oil. He raised to life a boy who died after complaining of a headache. There's an interesting neurological um, differential there. But cured poison by putting some flour in stew. He fed 100 men with 20 loaves of bread. Jesus wasn't the only person to multiply bread. Cured a man of leprosy. We've got floating axe heads, people being struck blind. Um, Lots and lots and lots and lots of miracles. Very, very little faith. And uh, this is my favorite Miracle here of Elisha after he was dead. Elisha died and was buried. Every year, bands of Moabites used to invade the land of Israel. And one time during a funeral, one of those bands was seen. And the people threw the corpse into Elisha's tomb and ran off. As soon as the body came into contact with Elisha's bones, the man came back to life and stood up. just imagine you're in a funeral procession and uh, you hear the Moabites coming. And so in a panic, you drop the body in Elisha's tomb. And as you're running away, you turn back to see if the Moabites are catching up and there's the dead man running after you also. I mean, that would be um, quite amazing, wouldn't it? Well, why, why do we have all of these miracles? And what's the purpose of a miracle like this? This certainly wasn't a miracle because of the great faith of the people. Well, we come to Jesus. Lots and lots and lots of miracles. Uh, we often call the resurrection of Lazarus, his crowning miracle. And was he really dead? Yes. And what did they say? He stinks. Okay, you'd stink after being dead for three days in a tomb, and he resurrected him. And you would think if we were there, I mean, if you as a medical professional pronounce someone dead, three days later he's resurrected, uh, wouldn't that impress you? But Look how unimpressed the people were. From that day on, from that day on, the Jewish authorities made plans to kill Jesus. How could they not be impressed by a miracle like that? But again, we have the question here, little faith, lots of miracles. And this verse in John 12, such a parallel to the verse we just read in Numbers. Even though he performed all these miracles in their presence, they did not believe or trust in him. It's such a copy of the verse in Numbers. Even though I've done all these miracles, they still don't trust me. Okay, so what are we to make out of all this? Um, We've given several examples of a time of no faith and lots of miracles. Uh, Let me just give you a couple of examples of people with lots of faith and no miracles. What about Job? Remember how the book opens up, God says of Job to Satan, have you noticed my servant Job, the finest man in all the earth? He is blameless, perfect in the King James, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. Okay, is there a man of faith? Yeah, absolutely. And Job's words during his trial, if only my life could once again be as it was when God watched over me. God was always with me then and gave me light as I walked through darkness. Those were the days when I was prosperous and the friendship of God protected my home. And remember, God in the end of the book says, Job, you've said of me what is right. So we have a man of great faith here who went through this incredible trial, no miracle. Okay, and we have to admire Job saying, I don't understand this, but though he slay me, yet will I trust him. So there is someone who trusts God, but yet with absent the miracles. Okay, we can give lots of examples. In fact, it, it frequently seems that the great men and women of faith have had the roughest time of it in the Bible. Maybe just to list uh, Paul. Was he a man of faith? Obviously. Okay, but he had a physical ailment, which it's interesting to think about what it might be. But he described it this way in 2 Corinthians. To keep me from being puffed up with pride because of the many wonderful things I saw, I was given a painful physical ailment which acts as Satan's messenger to beat me and keep me from being proud. Three times I prayed to the Lord, a great man of faith, prayed for healing about this and asked him to take it away and it wasn't taken away. Okay, so when we try to understand this, little faith, lots of miracles, lots of faith, and sometimes not miracles. I think one thing we could say about miracles probably should say about miracles, is it's, it's often seen as, boy, if we just had miracles, that would be the ultimate, wouldn't it? If we had a spectacular revelation. But it seems like miracles are really a, perhaps the lowest way um, to reach us. In other words, it gets our attention, perhaps, but as we've just shown it, it frequently doesn't change our course of direction. I'll probably quote this verse several times. I think it just fits so well for explaining the whole Old Testament people of Israel are as stubborn as mules. How can I feed them like lambs in a meadow? Stubborn mules perhaps need a loud voice, lots of miracles, signs and wonders. Okay, But is that the ultimate way God wants to reach us, through signs and wonders and miracles? It okay, wouldn't seem like it. In fact, it doesn't seem that uh, effective for the most part. Well, we just try to imagine here, what would our response? Be. Let's just say some bright being came down from heaven right here to Loma Linda okay, and sat up on the hill. And we're all amazed. We can't, can't believe this. Obviously, this is a spectacular manifestation. Would that be enough evidence um, to convince us of something? What do we do with uh, miracles? I mean, we don't. Uh, it would be interesting to know how many of you have actually experienced a definite supernatural manifestation, but something where everyone uh, could identify with it and say, boy, that's, that's clearly uh, supernatural. How would we respond to that? Well, uh, what I think is very dangerous, potentially, about miracles is, is we have this description about end times. Uh, it would seem that someone else is capable of doing miracles. In Revelation 13, we read about this beast who performed great miracles, made fire come down out of heaven to earth in the sight of everyone, and it deceived all the people living on earth by means of the miracles. Okay, now, why does God so often seem unsuccessful with the use of miracles? And here we have this beast. The whole world follows the beast because of the miracles. Well, I think perhaps the most telling here is in 2 Thessalonians, describing the same thing, but I think maybe we get an insight as to Why it works that way. The wicked one will come with the power of Satan and perform, again, all kinds of false miracles and wonders and use every kind of wicked deceit on those who will perish. They will perish, and he explains why. Because they did not welcome and love the truth so as to be saved. So again, the warning here about false miracles, wonders. Okay, Why do some go after that? And the description is, well, those people did not welcome and love the truth. Okay, so it would be pretty important here. The the truth would seem to be supremely important. What truth is it that would be uh, so important? Maybe just read a couple of other translations of this. The man of sin will come with the power of Satan. He will use every kind of power, including miraculous and wonderful signs, but they will be lies. He will use everything that God disapproves of to deceive those who are dying. And again, those who refuse to love the truth, that would save them. Okay, what is the truth that saves us? Read one more, this time the Message Bible. The anarchist's coming is all Satan's work. All his power and signs and miracles are fake, evil, sleight of hand, that plays to the gallery of those who hate the truth that could save them. What I think this is describing, notice it plays to the gallery of those who hate the truth. We think about the miracles of Jesus, and they were actually quite offensive. It did not play to the gallery of the truth as the people in those days saw it. Remember, he healed on the Sabbath, and they were very upset. That did not play to the truth as they saw it. They actually hated him for healing on the Sabbath. Um, his miracles were um, an offense, really. And Remember, when they asked for a miracle, hey, show us a miracle, then we'll believe. Uh, never did it under those circumstances. Okay, So the picture of God that Jesus came to bring was not the kind of Messiah that they wanted. So they were able to ignore the miracles because it didn't fit with their theology uh, about the Messiah. So what is the truth? This passage in in John 8 that really culminates with, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. I think this is the truth that Paul's talking about um, here in Thessalonians. Remember, Jesus here in this chapter is having this contentious argument with the Pharisees who uh, think he's from the devil. And it's it's really uh, fireworks go off here in this chapter. But they said, where is this so-called father of yours? And Jesus said, you're looking right at me and you don't see me. How do you expect to see the Father? If you knew me, you would at the same time know the Father. Okay, this whole passage here, what is the truth? It's in the context of Jesus saying, hey, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you knew me, you would know the Father. The Father and I are one. Okay, and we just read on in the conversation. And he would say, when you lift up the Son of Man, you will know that I am who I am. That's the incredible claim here, the I am who talked to Moses at the burning bush. Jesus is claiming to be none other than God in human form in claiming to be the I am. So Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, he turned to those who were on his side. If you live by what I say, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Okay, what is that truth? And he turned to the others and said, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to follow your father's desires. From the very beginning, he was a murderer, has never been on the side of truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he is only doing what is natural to him because he is a liar and the father of all lies. And I should have quoted, I like the translation that has this singular, he is the father of the lie. Okay, what is the lie that um, Satan has been spreading? Well, as it goes on, they gave it right back to Jesus. They asked Jesus, were we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? He just said, you are of your father the devil, and they come right back. Well, you also work for the devil, and you're a Samaritan. Okay, and the whole conversation ends with Jesus saying, I'm telling you the truth. Before Abraham was born, I am. There it is again. And then they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself, and left the temple. And I think what Jesus is really saying here, hey, the Father and I are one. I've come to reveal who the Father is. And if you would know that truth, that truth will set you free. Okay, we hardly go a Bible study without reading this. But, um, well, first, a a quote here. George MacDonald, I don't know if any of you are familiar with him. Uh, C.S. Lewis credited George MacDonald with uh, being his greatest influence. Okay, George MacDonald, I think, says this very well. Sadly, there are those who would have us love Christ for protecting us from God instead of leading us to God, the one home of safety. They imagine justice and love dwelling in eternal opposition in the bosom of eternal unity. And here's his conclusion. I and the Father are one is the center truth of the universe. I think that really is the center truth of the universe, uh, that the character of the Almighty God is precisely as Jesus revealed him to be. So when Jesus would come along and define his mission, again, the verse we keep quoting here, this is eternal life, to know you, the only true God. And how do we know God? We know God because he came, he lived, he died. I mean, this is the evidence of God's character. And that is eternal life. Remember the words to know, it's relationship, it's an intimate uh, experience. And Jesus said on earth, I've given you glory by finishing the work or the mission, singular, you gave me to do, and then he would say, I made your name known. Remember, name is synonymous with character. Okay, so his mission was to reveal the character of God. Okay, and that is the truth, really, that sets us free. So how does this work? We'll come back to this verse here, talking about trust and miracles. Okay, hey, if miracles frequently don't work, or, or really miracles could just confirm. I mean, if you really disagreed with someone's theology, some preacher, and um, you saw a miracle, I mean, the preacher levitated or did something like that, you would either say, "Well, I better change my theology," or "This is of Satan." I mean, you, you kind of it causes a very splitting effect. But how does God really want to restore our trust? What is the ultimate way? Miracles just, uh, they get our attention, but they don't necessarily change our picture of God. I think this is ultimately how it works. It's such a concise verse here in Psalm 9. Those who know you, Lord, will trust you. It is a knowledge of God that restores our trust. Again, that's why Jesus came. But how does that work? Let's go back now to uh, Elijah. I think this is so interesting that after the fire came down from heaven, he's totally depressed, no revival, and he runs out to Mount Sinai and goes out to the mountain. And uh, we have this incredible exchange where God would say, go out and stand before me on top of the mountain. And then the Lord passed by and sent a furious wind that split the hills and shattered the rocks. But the Lord was not in the wind. What does that mean the wind stopped blowing, and then there was an earthquake? But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. So we got all these spectacular things, but God was not in them. And after the fire, there was a soft whisper of a voice, and that's when God communicated to Elijah. Soft whisper of a voice, variously translated here as a gentle whisper, quiet whisper. Uh, In the King James, a still, small voice. Could it be that God is suggesting, yeah, that was uh, pretty spectacular, that fire coming down from heaven, okay? But is that the ideal? Would this not suggest that the ideal here is the still, small voice of truth, not to overwhelm us with lights and uh, earthquake and so on? I'd really like to communicate truth to you in this way which reminds us, how does the Holy Spirit work? Not by strength, not by power, but by my Spirit. And when we went through the, the sanctuary system, remember we read all the verses. How does the Holy Spirit work? Brings us the truth. Brings us the truth about God through Jesus. Brings us the truth about Jesus. And you can't intimidate or overwhelm people with that. It has to be a still, small voice that penetrates and convicts. I think that probably the best story, really, of how this works is uh, the Emmaus Road experience. Remember, Jesus died, was resurrected, and these two men on the Emmaus Road didn't know about it. I think we really learned, this is how the Holy Spirit convicts us. Notice the way that Jesus uh, brought these people to truth. On that same day, two of Jesus' followers were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking to each other about all the things that had happened. As they talked and discussed, Jesus himself drew near and walked along with them. They saw him, but somehow did not recognize him. Okay, so our question is, why would Jesus come here in disguise? Why not just say, hey, I'm Jesus, I'm resurrected. Okay, why did he have a conversation with them? Well, Jesus said to them, what are you talking about to each other as you walk along? Okay, as if he didn't know. They stood still with sad faces And one of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have been happening there these last few days? What things? Hmm, I have no idea. What things are you talking about? Well, the things that happened to Jesus of Nazareth, they answered. This man was a prophet and was considered by God and by all the people to be powerful in everything he said and did Our chief priests and rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and he was crucified, and we had hoped that he would be the one who was going to set Israel free. Besides all that, this is now the third day since it happened. And then Jesus said to them, How foolish you are, how slow you are to believe everything the prophets said. Was it not necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and then to enter his glory? And then Jesus explained to them what was said about himself in all the scriptures, beginning with the books of Moses and the writings of the prophets. Okay, wouldn't you love to know how Jesus interpreted all those Old Testament passages? We don't have this Bible study, but he took them through the Old Testament. Okay? And as they came near the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if... Again, notice how many times he's acting this way, but um, acted as if... He was going further, but they held him back saying, stay with us, the day's almost over and it's getting dark. So he went in to stay with them. He sat down to eat with them, took the bread and said the blessing. And then he broke the bread and gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. And uh, their description here of this event, they said to each other, wasn't it like a fire burning in us when he talked to us and explained the scriptures to us? And so, Jesus' choice here, I mean, they would have worshiped, they would have been overwhelmed if he just said, Hey, look at my nail prints, it's me. Could have done that from moment one. Okay, but would suggest to me that what God really wants is us to be settled into the truth because the evidence convicts us, not just to be overwhelmed by signs, wonders, and miracles. Could have easily done that for the, it wouldn't even have been a miracle, just revealed himself to them. Okay, it was more important to Jesus that they were convicted based on evidence that appealed to their reason, okay, rather than to be overwhelmed. And the, notice as they described the fire burning in them, it was as they became convinced. You know what, this is really true. The Messiah did need to die and suffer and to rise. So I think that's how it works. Maybe if I could just uh, finish up here with an illustration. We often talk about medicine, evidence-based. Religion, faith-based. And what do we mean by faith? Um, Well, maybe we'll talk about this next time, but a faith is often described as a leap in the dark. Um, Faith is often described, well, how did Mark Twain describe it? The the schoolboy who said, faith is believing what you know ain't so. Okay, is that what faith is? Um, Well, faith really, best definition, Hebrews 11.1. Faith is not a leap in the dark. Faith is the substance. That's something you can hold on to, of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So the ultimate evidence, really, that convicts us is the life, the death of Jesus Christ. That is the truth that sets us free. And um, well, whether to bring this up or not, I just can't help but notice some parallels sometimes. as We think about the people waiting for the first coming of the Messiah, And we consider these people eagerly awaiting the coming of the Messiah. That's the definition of an Adventist, awaiting the imminent return of Jesus. And they kept the list, which is not a bad list. Kept the Sabbath, read their Bibles, paid tithe, went to church. Jesus commented on their missionary work. Okay, pretty good list. And they were expecting a Messiah who would come and use power and miracles to defeat their enemies. And we could say they were highly susceptible to the right kind of miracles. Okay, when Jesus fed the 5,000, remember they're all excited. Uh, they wanted to make him king because, hey, man, this must be the guy. He's gonna do miracles and you know, allow us to defeat our enemies. Okay, he always disappointed them by not doing those kinds of miracles. And no one Expected a suffering, dying Messiah. Even John the Baptist, remember when he was in prison, sent his disciples out to say, are you the one or should we expect someone else? They had not interpreted their scriptures, the Old Testament, in the right way. They were not expecting a Messiah like this in any way. So could we draw some parallels that might be a little scary here as we await perhaps the second coming, eagerly awaiting the coming of Jesus in the clouds, which, um, yeah, I mean... We should be enthusiastically waiting. But is it about having the right list and proving that we are God's people because we keep a certain list? Are we um, waiting for God to come back and use his power to defeat our enemies? Are we susceptible to perhaps miracles that might play into a certain view of theology? And uh, do we really have a right picture of the second coming? We can draw too many scary parallels, I'm afraid, with the people who are waiting the advent of the first Messiah. And so what those people were missing, if we could just boil it down, what didn't they know? What they really didn't know was they didn't have a true knowledge of God. They didn't know what he was like. They were certainly not expecting a humble God, God who would heal lepers and do all kinds of things like that. And so ultimately what seems important to us, to me, Not to diminish the list or any of these things, but are we settled on the person of God as revealed by Jesus Christ? That would seem to be the core, central issue. For those of you who've gone gone to Sigby Tonsted's class, uh, which meets Saturday morning, I really would recommend it. Uh, He made this great point about Jesus and miracles. Uh, It's been said that the greatest miracles of Jesus were the times that he did not do miracles. The devil came in the, in the desert and said, if you're God's son, order these stones to turn to bread. No miracle. As Jesus is hanging on the cross, they said, save yourself if you're God's son. Do a miracle. Come on down. Okay, no miracle. And so the non-use of miracles um, in, in Jesus' life. And, and again, I think ultimately, the demonstration of uh, the ultimate Uh, love, agape love, we talked about on the cross. It would seem that that is really what needs to happen among God's people on earth. We read about uh, in Revelation, last verse here, what is described about the people in the end times? It would seem they exhibit this same Calvary-type love. They didn't love their life so much that they refused to give it up. Again, the the ultimate definition of love is other-centered. It is willing to do for others. It is to give, sacrifice for others. And perhaps that is what needs to happen on the earth to demonstrate the same love that Jesus had on the cross. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I just pray that you'd be with each person here, that, that our relationship with you would be true and real, that our picture of you would increasingly become like Jesus, that our trust in you will not be based on signs or wonders, but on the evidence that we see by your life and your death Help us to internalize more of you and to represent you as you really are to others. Amen.